Another edition of the Metrospective as we welcome you in. I'm Pete McCarthy along with Tim Britton and our special guest today, uh, the longtime manager of the New York Mets, took them to the World Series back in the year 2000. Uh, it is Bobby Valentine. And Bobby, uh, how are you? You know, I'm as good as anybody out there. Uh, I'm healthy. I'm in the house. I'm doing a lot of stuff. And um, yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. I hope everyone's uh, safe and healthy out there, too. Well, we saw you're taking advantage of your time in the house. Uh, I saw you singing Meet the Mets on uh, social media. And and it looked like you're going through all these pictures that you have to your time with the Mets, all this memorabilia. Is that something you've been spending your time doing of late? As a matter of fact, I found a um, a warehouse full, about five boxes of old um, uh, VHS tapes. And uh, I've been, I, I went online and I found a, v8, uh, a VHS to, uh, or a v, uh, what is it, v, VCR to... Um, yeah, VHS, yeah. VHS, anyway, DVD. I'm transferring everything from my, from my old tapes onto discs. And um, I, I've just come up with incredible stuff that I, I probably have never watched Um that's just been recorded and, and put away and uh, I'm watching it now and I'm, I'm blown away by the stuff that I found. Yeah. What, what's your favorite thing you've come across? I mean, are those old games or those, what, what are you watching there? Oh, my favorite stuff. You know, I, I found some footage from when I was in Cape Cod in 1967 playing for Lou Lamorello, the hall of fame uh, hockey <laughs> coach and, and, general manager and president uh you know i found uh, ballroom dance contest from the waldorf story and and the edison hotel that that i never even knew existed um i mean i i, I found some stuff that's uh, blown me away so what do you mean you you played for lou lamorello can you expand on that well i was a high school um junior uh lou was a, a assistant uh, baseball and hockey coach at Providence College back in 1967. He happened to be in Stanford, Connecticut to have dinner with um, uh, a fellow coach from Providence, um, Billy O'Connor, who lived in Stanford, Connecticut, who happened to be a relative of Andy Robustelli and Rick Robustelli. And before you knew it, Lou was staying over to watch a baseball game. Not necessarily to watch me, but to watch um, uh, the, the Catholic school play where all the Robustellis were involved. I happened to have a really good day after the game. He went over to my mom and dad, said that uh, he was going to be coaching in the Cape Cod College League, and he wanted me to go up there and play for him. And um, lo, lo and behold, I guess my dad didn't like him because he was Italian. He liked him because my dad was Italian. And um, he trusted Lou to take his kid away on a summer vacation. I wound up playing about 50 games. I hit uh, 297. I, I, I did a good enough job that a lot of co uh, uh, professional scouts saw me play. And um, before you know it, the next year, I was the number one draft choice of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Well, Lou is known as like a no-nonsense guy in, in the hockey world. Was he the same at, at that point in baseball? What was it like playing for him? You know, he was 24 years old. I was 17. 
Uh, he had a lot of rules. One of them was that I wasn't allowed to travel in the trunk when we went on a road trip. Uh, and and uh, he caught me doing it one time. He got quite upset. Um, you know, but, but it wasn't a long road trip. It was only about 35 miles up to Chatham. We were playing in uh, Yarmouth. Um, you know, he had a group of college guys that um, responded to him really well. Uh, it was a real diverse group you know we had a kid from harvard uh, playing first base and kid from yukon playing second and the high school play kid playing center field so he had his work cut out for him for that that short season but he did a great job we didn't win the championship but we sure did come close and we had a lot of fun doing it yeah what, what did i mean that the, the cape cod league is for for college players now it's that big leaping point uh, to get ready for the majors, basically. Did that tell you as a 17-year-old, hey, like, I'm I'm almost ready for this? Well, I, I guess it was um, a situation, looking back at it, that um, per- prepared me to be a professional baseball player. But, um, you know, when I was doing it, I just thought, you know, I had a couple of alternatives, either play for the senior Babe Ruth League in my hometown or go with this um, college coach and, and experience uh, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And and luckily, um, you know, Lou was Lou and and all uh, ended so wonderfully that, you know, we're still friends. Um, uh, I just uh, texted him the other day to make sure he was doing well. And um, he, he's always been there in, in times of need and, and times of joy. So, um you know, I, I was just a real lucky guy that 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 he was in Stanford that day and happened to see me play. That's amazing, and it's uh, it's a small world, and and you you get a chance to play for Lou Lamorello, and then of course uh, go on to have plenty of success as a manager in your own right, including your time with the New York Mets, and and I suppose I, I've seen some of the pictures you were showing uh, on social media. Is there anything, any memorabilia from your time with the Mets specifically that uh, jumped out at you? Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, I have so much uh, stuff from the Mets when um, I saw the video of the opening day in, in Japan, which I had never seen before. Um, Benny Agbayani in the second game hitting the home run. I got chills when when I saw him doing it. Um, you know, I I played for the Mets in the in the 70s when Joe Torre was the manager. I coached for the Mets with George Bamberger, Frank Howard, and Davey Johnson. I was their, all of their third base coaches for over three and a half or four years. Um, I came back and, and managed the Mets, as uh, everyone knows. So I, I have a lot of memorabilia with the Mets. You know, one of, one of the photos I pulled out the other day was um, with the first coaching group that I, I ever coached with. I was 32 years old. George Bamberger was the manager, Frank Howard, Jim Fry, Vern Hoshite, and, and uh, Bill Robinson and Mel Stottlemyre rounded out that coaching staff. And, um, you know, those those were amazing days and amazing memories. You know, George was the manager. He, he reluctantly took the job from Frank Cashin, who was the general manager. Uh, they had ties from uh, their Baltimore days. Uh, George kind of hanged, was ready to hang him up after his Milwaukee days, but took the job with, with the Mets. Um, 
didn't have a very good team, didn't have a very uh, fun time. And one day uh, after batting practice in L.A., he walked into the middle of, middle of the clubhouse right before the game and called the meeting and said, boys, I'm going fishing. And uh, that was the last he saw George Bamberger. And uh, Frank Howard took over that day. So uh, I was looking for some videos of that team. Uh, because it was it was an amazing group of guys, Bobby Baylor and Dave Kingman, George Foster, and wow, you know, great, just great met memories, no doubt about that. Yeah, you talk you talk about coaching with a, a a bunch of diverse coaching staffs. What what did you learn from from guys like Joe Torre and and George Bamberger and Davey Johnson, all that before you, you know you got the job yourself uh, a little later? Well, I wish I wrote down things at the particular times and uh, was able to give credit to those um, those who deserve credit but um, you know what uh, uh, Davey Davey was the uh, the guy that uh, was the first one to, to light the light in my head um, where where he felt there was a real unfair thing to treat everyone the same because everyone's different I really liked that uh, philosophy. And, um, <clears throat> you know, Frank Howard um, had a line that I used a, f- a few times, um, and that was, don't mistake my kindness for my for weakness. Um, you know, I, I really like that, uh, and, and I use that. I'm trying to think of things that I might have learned from George Bamberger. Um, no, I can't, uh, I can't quite give the credit he teach you how to fish it was a learning experience you know i was i was a first base coach hired to be the first base coach um mainly because uh i was a minor league coach at the time and tommy lasorda had an opening on his staff in la because junior gilliam had passed away and he called and asked permission to talk to me about being a major league coach and Frank said uh, that he wasn't going to grant permission because he had already offered me to be a major league coach. Um, not quite the way it worked out. I found out a couple of days later uh, that uh, not only was Frank going to offer me a job to be a uh, major league coach, but that Tommy uh, called and, and asked permission. So, you know, those were the days without Internet and without uh, any Twitter Twitter feeds and and I didn't don't even think I had voice uh, messaging at the time uh, with my house phone. So uh, you know, think things happened a little slower in those days, and and uh, I was hired to be the first base coach. And then after spring training was over, and we're in Philadelphia, ready to open up the season. George Bamberger called uh, Frank and I into the office and he said, hey, you know, I want you two guys to switch. Frank was the third base coach and I was the first base coach. And George decided that Frank was a really good first base coach and and thought that maybe um, that that I could do the job at third base. Now, I don't know if that was to see if I could fail real quickly or uh, to <clears throat> to see if I knew how to give signs, but um, opening day in Philadelphia um, with a couple hours notice, I was a third base coach. And in, I think that opening game, 
Uh, I was coaching third with Bobby Baylor on second base, uh, who might have been or might have been on first base. He might have been running on the play. There was a ball in the gap. I was uh, looking at the ball and I was uh, waving him around. And um, I think I stopped him or I was waving him. I'm not sure which one it was, but he ran right into me. And uh, I did a back, <laughs> I did a backward roll on the on the turf in in that stadium. And the umpire didn't even call him out for um, running into the coach. But I learned after that that I can't uh, ever have contact with any players uh, as a third base coach. But, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, learning something um, the hard way, I guess. <laughs> hey, a lot more respect for those third base coaches. Right? I thought it was going to be a decision and maybe uh, you, you got a guy thrown out at the plate or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, you got to watch out for these guys speeding around on top yeah, of Yeah, I mean, he ran full blast uh, right into me, and, and uh, <laughs> I, I obviously was in the wrong position. Uh, I was in his path, and, um, you know, from after that, I learned to kind of, if I was waving him, I would go down the line with him as I was uh, windmailing my my arm around, and if I was stopping him, um, I kind of moved up toward him, toward them, but I never uh, got in their, in their flight path. Now, when you when you took over the Mets, you took over late in '96, and then you you built on it uh, in '97. You guys contended all year uh, again in '98. At at what point, maybe maybe it was in '98 or into '99, did you realize this is a team that can can do can can not only make the playoffs but can contend maybe for a pennant and a World Series the way you did down the line? Well, you know, the thorn in my side and and the thing that I never lost sight of is that we were in the same division with Atlanta. And, uh, you know, the the wild card came on later, um, I think maybe in 99. Was that the first wild card? Um, But it wasn't there when I first started managing. I don't don't believe um, managing the Mets anyway. I know it wasn't there when I was managing Texas. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, it it, it was a situation where, uh, you know, we had to get really good. We didn't just have to be. Um, you know, a good team, which we we became. We made a couple moves. We, you know, instituted some uh, video coaching, uh, changed the the culture around where instead of just uh, kind of, you know, chewing a little tobacco and, and uh, spitting on our hands, um, we're actually doing game preparation. And um, uh, we had an organizational strategy that we were, uh, teaching the same thing throughout the the organization. So, um, you know, we, we were trying to build something that had to be really special in order to get by the Braves. And um, I thought that we were, we were always moving in the right direction, and I always thought we were uh, a couple of pieces away from uh, being the, the super team that we, we really should have been or could have been. You know, I interviewed either Mike Piazza or Chipper Jones at, at various points. And this is a few years back, and, and they said they had never spoke. Like, they never talked about the, the old days going up against one another or anything along those lines. And maybe that's changed now that they are both in Cooperstown. But when you talk about those days going up against the Braves, how much of a dislike was there for Atlanta? How, beyond just trying to win games, win the division, was there 
a, a dislike between the two teams that was felt on the field? I think some players had a bit uh, of that um, uh, disliking thing. I I was always very envious. Um, you know, I, I saw Hall of Famers uh, on the field, and, and uh, you know, we were usually in the dugout when I was looking out at the Hall of Famers. Uh, you know, and, and there, there was no doubt that, that their talent uh, was really, really good. And there was no doubt that they were able to get that pitch off the plate called so often uh, during that time. I mean, I was really um, – that upset me. Uh, that, that did uh, uh, anger me, if you will, because um, I wanted my guys to get that pitch off the plate. You know, and, and we didn't get it, and they did, and, and it became uh, uh, probably the thing that we disliked most about Atlanta. Uh, not only that they were really good, um, and, you know, at, at the time, the other Jones was as much a Hall of Famer as Chipper Jones. That You mm-hmm. know, Andrew Jones was uh, so damn good, it was sickening. You know, he, he played right behind second base. <laughs> And he caught balls that were going over the wall, and and he caught line drives over shortstop. It was it was unbelievable the impact that that he had on a, on a game on a daily basis. And um, you know we we were always searching for for those pieces. Yeah, I mean you guys had that memorable NLCS in 1999. You guys fall down 3-0, come back and win late in Game Four. Have the incredible Grand Slam single game. Uh, with Robin Ventura in Game Five, what, what do you remember about? I think it was a Sunday afternoon game when Ventura hits that that Grand Slam single. Just the ebbs and flows of emotion you go through in a game like that. Oh, it is! A, it was an amazing game uh, with a packed house at home, our backs up against the wall, and um, and the rains came, you know, and no one left. No one left the stadium, and it was it was kind of, it was miserable. And uh, I, I remember looking down the right field line and, and actually fearing that the stadium was going to collapse, that that, that, that um, loge level or that second tier that was shaking from everyone standing and, and uh, jumping at the same time, that uh, it, it, it was uh, reminiscent of being on the field in 1989 in Candlestick Park when there was an earthquake and I saw the stands moving and I saw the fence waving um, out, out in the outfield. Uh, it was it was reminiscent of that, that uh, I actually thought the, the place was, uh, well, it was. It was shaking. It was rocking and rolling. <laughs> and, um, you know, when, when the bases became loaded, uh, someone... And I wish I remember who. I think it might have been Tom. I don't know who it was, but someone said he's going to hit a grand slam. You know, and and that wasn't such a great prediction because Robin always hit a grand slam. But, you know, (laughs) someone said he's going to hit a grand slam like as the pitch was coming in. And, you know, it was such an amazing scene to have the guys meet him between first and second to have Todd Pratt uh, sprinting out there and almost tackling him uh, as he did it. I thought the fans were going to spill onto the field. I thought we were going to have a scene like, uh, <laughs> like you saw 
when uh, Reggie Jackson had a fight through the fans after hitting, uh, or Chris Chambliss had a fight through the stands mm -hmm. at uh, Yankee Stadium uh, after hitting a game-winning home run. I, I really thought that it was going to be that kind of mayhem, um, but it, it was spectacular, um, and, and everyone contributed, and I wish I, I watched that game before we had this interview so I could really remember uh, all of the specialness of the game because it, it was a very memorable game. Well, that's just an easy six hours of your life to, to sit back and rewatch. It's a quick one, right? Yeah, I'd have to fast forward a little of it to tell you the truth. But, uh, yeah, it, it, we were there forever. And um, was that the 14th inning? 15th, 15th inning. 15th inning, inning yeah. when he finally hit 15th it. 15th inning. By God, that's just just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so I I, I know one of the hey, big debates Pat that Mahomes Mets fans have that game? is – he, he pitched earlier in that game. Uh, I think you actually brought him in after you had Dennis Cook finish out an intentional walk yes. to Ryan Klesko. Yes. I think that, the, oh, yeah, that's where yeah, that's where Cook didn't understand why he would come in and, and leave with an intentional walk. It was for the matchup to get the right hand, the right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Patrick Patrick came in. Wasn't he spectacular that se that season? It seemed like every time he came in, we won. That's why I thought maybe uh, he was the winning pitcher. He wasn't. Who was the winning pitcher in that game? Uh, Octavio Dotel. No kidding. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. What else you got? Yeah. So yeah. What, one of the, the big debates that Mets fans have is, you know, the 2000 team got to the World Series, but a lot of them still think the 99 team, you know, with John Olerud was maybe a little bit better. In, in your mind, you, you know, you managed both of them. Did, did one of them stand out a little bit more than the other to you? Well, uh, if, if I had to pick a favorite, it was 99. Um, you know, I, I thought that was a, you know, a team that we built together, you know, that it was... Uh, we weren't really working with um, that many spare parts, if you will. We we had a group that um, you know was there that that uh, marched to the same the same beat, and um, yeah, I love that team. You know, I I was never more confident of winning a game as I was when we went to Cincinnati, lost the flip, uh, had to travel to Cincinnati, had to watch the game. Uh, clubhouse to figure out if we were actually going to win you know and 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 we went to Cincinnati we won that game and the thing that sticks in my craw was that prior to us going there at, on the plane there were articles that were written and being passed around and uh, one one of the Times writers, as, as I remember it, wrote this um, this ridiculous article uh, saying even if we win that game, that he hoped we showed enough of professionalism by not celebrating on the field because you're not winning anything. You can't. You're not allowed to celebrate. And so we didn't. We didn't celebrate on the field. You know, there wasn't a thing 
where winning that wild card in 1999, which was a hell of a thing to do, you know, because Cincinnati was a spectacular team. We went down to the wire. We both had mid-90 wins. No one should have had to go home uh, after a one-game playoff. But then we had to just ho-hum it and and uh, get on the plane and, and go to the next series. Uh, I, I thought that that was kind of strange. Well, you guys got to make it up, I'm sure, after uh, beating the Diamondbacks in the, the division series, right? Well, a bit. But uh, then again, we didn't win anything there either. So there wasn't a major – I don't think there was a major celebration there. You know, now – now, you know, there's celebrations. Guys are celebrating five and six times to get in winning the World Series. Um, I, I don't think there was any any champagne or anything when we when we uh, beat the Diamondbacks and went on. Um, um, no, I, I think it was spectacular, though. You know, again, the, the things that jump out are the same things that the fans remember, uh, and they probably even remember things more vividly. Um, but uh, when, when Finley went up for Todd Pratt's ball mm-hmm. and Todd Pratt stopped, kind of hesitated going around first base, I thought he had a better angle than I did. And I thought he saw that Finley catch it. And then when he came down and he, he was uh, sitting there with, with nothing in his glove, it, it was a, you know, up, down, up uh, emotion. When he hit it, it was an up. When I thought he caught it, it was a down. And then when I realized he didn't have the ball, it was another up. Oh, boy. Why? Nothing was easy in those days. How, how difficult was it for you that postseason in particular? I mean, you had your Mike Piazza was your best hitter in the middle of that lineup. Uh, and he was dealing with a couple different Knicks, <laughs> some, some tough injuries at that point. And you had Pratt on the bench. How hard was it to, to manage, you know, when Piazza's playing, when he's coming in and out of a game? <laughs> hard it was almost impossible it was it was the most ridiculous uh challenge i think anybody's ever had uh, in their life you know uh if if mike wasn't in the lineup uh it was because he was either injured or was just about ready to go get underwater i always thought that you, you know what you had to do with a player was you know, you, you let them play and you'd see them play. And then the magic uh, was to listen to the training room, listen to the coaches, listen to the player and make sure he got rested before he got to that state of no return where you're, I used to refer to it as you're underwater. And once you get underwater, you need days to recover, not games. Not a, yeah, I mean, you don't need a game to recover. You need days to actually get your body back. And with Mike, because, you know, he never hit a ball that he didn't run hard at. He never uh, didn't try to block every ball that was in the dirt as much as uh, as hard as anybody's ever worked at it. He was, uh, you know, six feet three, and our pitching staff was not the most economical uh, as far as the pitches they threw. So sometimes he was behind to play for 150, 160 pitches. He was then running as hard as he could down first the first base, and he was off and on the base. So he's running around those bases. And, um, you know, when I, when I didn't play him, 
I almost always wanted to give him the full day off. And uncannily, those games always were those close games where now I had to figure out when I was going to get to use that one bullet of Mike Piazza, that one silver bullet, that one swing that was a little different than everybody else's swing on the team. It was, you know, it was really hard to manage that. And, um, you know, I, I got criticized when he didn't play. And he usually didn't play on Sundays. You guys remember that? So he'd get a Sunday off mm-hmm. because it was a day game after a night game. It was 100 degrees uh, at Jay Stadium. And Sunday was always the day that the parents would bring the kids. And so I'd get these nasty letters about how the, the father brought the son wearing the Mike Piazza jersey and the idiot manager didn't play him on that Sunday afternoon. And I would say, oh, why did you write me ahead of time? I would make sure that he'd play if I knew you were bringing your kid to the game. You know what I mean? Well, I apologize for my dad's letters, Bobby. That was your dad writing that. It was probably you telling your dad to write the letter. (laughs) What were the conversations like when you told Mike Piazza, hey, you're going to have this day off if it wasn't scheduled because you felt he was about to go underwater? What what would that conversation be like? Well, I try to plan it uh, ahead of time. Um, You know, my staff uh, from the training room through the coaches – really took the temperature of all the players, you know, and, and, uh, they gave me the information that I usually needed, uh, whether it was the pitcher getting the day off in the bullpen or, or the everyday player getting the day off. And, um, I'd usually look at a schedule and say, Hey Mike, this is what the next five days or six days look like. What do you think about, Sunday. What do you think about that uh, travel day? What do you think about, um, you know, the first day in L.A.? And, um, you know, some days Mike was even receptive to talking to people like his manager or his coaches. And, uh, you know, if I if I caught him on a right day and, and he was he was um, talking, um, we'd usually come up with a plan. And sometimes he just kind of kind of do a little grunt or something. And I had to try to interpret whether that was a positive grunt or a negative grunt. Um, and, um, you know, it usually worked out. All right. I mean, he was never, there was never a day off that he didn't welcome. Uh, that's for sure. Um, but you know, there were, there were days where, you know, I'd say, I think you have one more here, Mike. And, you know, sometimes what I do is, um, you know, start him in a game knowing the next day was the day off and the game would be a, an out-of-hand game with a, a seven-run lead or a seven-run deficit. And I'd give him, you know, three or four innings that day uh, to add on to uh, the, the next day. To, and then I, I would say that that was the bonus plan, that he was getting bonus miles and he'd always laugh, laugh with that kind of thought. Yeah. But it was tough. It really was. I mean, it, 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 it was tough. He, uh, he played so hard and he, he was, he was so, you know, such a big guy. It wasn't like, uh, getting out of your crowd crouch, uh, 
you know, as a five foot ten guy, it's a big guy standing up, throwing the ball back. Uh, you know, there weren't many pass balls, thank God, but there were some wild pitches, and then he even had to go back after them. So um, it, it was it was memorable. And then you know, Al had that cutter, and um, oh yeah, you know, it, it gave Mike fits in that once in a while, if if. I could do a visual for you right here. If you if you put your hand up and have your fingers pointing up in the air, um, it as a catcher, if you could have your glove pointing in that direction when you receive the ball, your entire hand stops the force of the ball. But as that cutter, which moves from the first base side to the third base side and moves rather rapidly, if you turn your glove so now your thumb is pointing down toward the ground and that ball hits in your glove where the only thing that's stopping the ball, the force of the ball, is your thumb, it becomes problematic. And, um, you know, he wore a thumb guard for that uh, reason, but every once in a while he get whacked. And, uh, you know, it was three or four days where we didn't even know if he could swing the bat uh, and yet he played in those games. You know, Bobby, it's so nice to, to talk baseball. And, uh, you know, just we know there are bigger things in play right now. But what's it like not having any baseball and not knowing when it, it is going to be back for us all to take in again? Well, absolutely. The uncertainty is uh, the devil here. Um, you know, uh, we dealt with that a little uh, after 9-11. Um, you know, we were we had fear. Um, we all had fear. Uh, we had uh, uncertainty of, of the enemy. Uh, yet, um, I think what we, what we had was a trust and uh, a teamwork uh, in, our, in our society and in our country at the time, which got us back on the field uh, sooner. Uh, even though, you know, in the, when we did come back, there was a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not we should be playing on uh, 9-21, uh, <clears throat> just 10 days after 9-11. Uh, that being said, you know, the uncertainty now um, has kept a lot of people from trusting each other and trusting those that are making decisions on our behalf. And therefore, the teamwork um, I think is is lacking, and and if you're going to win anything, you need to have trust and th- teamwork. And I'm just hoping that um, both of those things could uh, start coming together a little quicker, so that we could uh, win and beat this uh, beat this enemy that's um, such a for- formidable uh, foe at this time. Well, yeah, I think we're all uh, looking forward to yeah, uh, to a yeah. game back at, at City Field that, that maybe has that kind of same same kind of impact that that September 21st game had with you guys back in 2001. Woo! Uh, yeah, uh, it's probably going to be different, um, and nothing. There's nothing wrong with uh, different. Um, it's just I I I'm lost without uh, baseball. You know I. I I watch everything at night. Um, I wake up in the morning and, and watch highlights. Uh, I'm, I'm on my computer. Um, you know, my, my college teams and my uh, academy travel teams who, 
who all deal with kids kids from 10 to uh, 22. Um, I, I, I've had so much joy watching them play and develop uh, on the field and, and not not being able to watch batting practice or, or a game, you know, that the university's playing or a, a major league game that the Mets or the Yankees or the Dodgers or whomever is playing when the TV goes on, uh, especially the Mets, of course, um, is, um, has created a void in my life. And um, there, there's really no filling that void right now. Well, you, you could watch uh, Benny Agbayani at home runs in Japan, and I think that's what we're all kind of doing to <laughs> fill that fill that void and, and go back to the past a little bit. But, uh, Bobby, it's been tremendous talking to you here. We really appreciate all the time that you've given us tonight. And uh, stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, we thank you once again. That's what we all have to yeah, do. Thanks, thanks you so much. guys. I uh, appreciate you thinking about me. Stay safe. Oh, it's great getting to catch up with Bobby Valentine uh, for a while there and, and just get some baseball. And he's describing, you know, Mike Piazza's glove and how it had to move to catch Al Leiter's cutter. I'm just like, yeah, this is the kind of baseball talk that I've just not had in weeks now as it's been all about, uh, obviously, other things, more important things uh, in the big picture. But, uh, you know, nice to, to talk some ball with Bobby, of course. You know, if you don't know, I mean, phenomenal athlete coming out of high school in Connecticut, multiple sports, had an opportunity to play big time college football. And of course, um, you know, broke his leg as a baseball player and uh, went on to become coach, manager and and have plenty of success uh, right here in Queens uh, with the New York Mets. So there are certain times when you don't want to have to go to the doctor's office to get help for a medical condition. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment as soon as possible. So that's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you could cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com Mets for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com Mets for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And we thank you for supporting our sponsors. Um, you know, Tim, uh, just kind of looking ahead here, we're kind of going back in the rearview mirror. That's something that you will be doing with all of the uh, the, the listeners and readers of The Athletic uh, on Tuesday nights. And fittingly, a game that Bobby Valentine was talking about, you will be uh, going in on uh, come uh, come Tuesday night. Yeah, he brought up, so it's the perfect segue, the, the second game of that 2000 season with Benny Agbayani coming through off the bench in Japan. You know, I think for, until we have baseball back, we're going to spend Tuesday nights uh, on The Athletic. We'll, we'll have like a discussion post, basically just a, a chat back and forth about an old Mets game. We'll have the YouTube video up. So I, I actually chose that one before we talked to Bobby because I've never seen that game. You know, that, that game was at what, 5.30 in the morning or something mm -hmm. on a, a Thursday uh, in March uh, back in 2000. So uh, I've seen the, the Agbayani highlight, obviously, but not how everything kind of builds 
old in that game. So I was interested in watching that uh, and seeing kind of all the old memories of the, you know, for me and you, the 99 and 2000 Mets, I think, really stand out as as the team of our youth. Uh, so to, to go back to that time and just kind of catch up with some fans and, and do something with our, our hours from 7 to 10, uh, since we're so used to spending it uh, on the couch watching Mets baseball, uh, let, let's try to get some semblance of that back uh, in the meantime. Yeah, it's a great idea, and uh, it seems like great times. So again, that'll be Tuesday, March 31st. And then uh, you also have the Red Seats Pub uh, every Monday. Uh, a chat in the comments section there at The Athletic. So go to theathletic.com, click on the, the Mets tab there, and you have all of Tim's coverage of what's happening and uh, some uh, creative ways to keep people involved right now and to get that Mets fix as we – wait all of this out and, and try to get back to baseball. So, uh, Tim, uh, next episode, by the way, this has been the Seth Lugo episode of the Metrospective, and we'll delve into his situation with the current Mets uh, a little bit later. But we've got uh, episode number 68 coming up uh, on Friday morning. And uh, remind you, we'll have, or let you know, we'll have Daniel Kaplan, sports business reporter at The Athletic, with us as he had an article this week about the Wilpons continuing their efforts to sell the Mets, even in the midst of this global pandemic and COVID-19. So how is that impacting that conversation, especially with the hits to the stock market and this and that? So we'll have Daniel Kaplan on on Friday. But 68 in Mets history, Dario Alvarez, Jeff McNeil worked for a short period of time when he was first called up, Wilmer Font and Donnie Hart, the four that have worn number 68. So I'll let you take it where you might want, Tim. So I took it in a different direction and looked at the 1968 New York Mets, uh, a team that uh, the best in franchise history at that point because they won 73 baseball games. Uh, but uh, a, a, a Met who had his the, the best season of his Mets tenure and, and maybe by some, some measures the best season of his major league career uh, that season at the hot corner Ed Charles, uh, you know, such a big part of that 69 team, even as he didn't have quite the same kind of season uh, as he did in 68 when he kind of solidified that position for the Mets as the veteran. So there you go. Ed Charles, uh, the, the late Ed Charles, uh, getting some love here. The, the poet laureate, they, they call him, of uh, those 60s uh, New York Mets. And uh, there you go. So we'll have that episode coming up on Friday morning. But big thanks once again to Bobby Valentine uh, for joining us. Outstanding job by our producer, Adam Gracia. I'm Pete McCarthy. And Tim, uh, we'll talk soon, bud. Adios.